Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I provide online divorce mediation and valuation services in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, we will discuss expert witness integrity and neutrality in litigation with C. Zachary Myers, a CVA and CPA in Winfield, West Virginia. He's testified and been qualified as an expert in the forensic accounting, taxation, business valuation, pension valuation fields, specific to civil, marital, and criminal litigation. Welcome, Zach. How are you? I am great. Thank you for having me. Well, this is awesome. We actually, um, we've known each other for a while, but you wrote an article titled An Unimpeachable Treaties. Can you tell us more about what this unimpeachable neutrality means to you, litigation valuation? Sure. Um, you know, I, I wrote Unimpeachable Treatise sort of as a piggyback to an article I wrote a couple years ago called The Pink Elephant in the Courtroom, which at the time I wrote it, uh, which I wrote it in 2017, I think it was published in 2018. When it came out, there were two sort of perspectives that were being argued with regards to lit- uh, calculations and valuations in a litigation setting. And at the time, I wasn't really too happy with it because it seemed to be you know, two very general perspectives, one being a calculation is never appropriate in litigation, and the other being, yeah, you can do a calculation anytime you want to, but I'm not you know, going to tell you how to do it or give you any real guidance, but you just have to use your own professional judgment. And I understand both sides of that, but at the time when I wrote The Big Elephant in the Courtroom, I wanted to try to provide a little bit better guidance. And fast forward a couple of years, the guidance was really needed with COVID-19. I think that right now with COVID-19, there were a lot of people that were uh, under limitations of time, data, and financial resources. And those were the very instances where back in the pink elephant in the courtroom article that I originally wrote in 2018, those were the instances where I felt that a calculation is even plausible in a litigation setting. So the unimpeachable treatise sort of piggybacks on that and also talks about some of the Q&As and standard interpretations that speak directly to the topic of calculations in a litigation setting that the NACBA Standards Board just recently put out last year and the beginning of this year. So I wanted to sort of summarize that and be a little bit more concise than I was in the Pink Elephant article. And it's it's worked out pretty pretty well. I, I was pretty happy with the final product. Well, and I think that it it touches on an issue that there's a nuance in valuation that there is a different, you know, we have two ways that we can do it under a, a certain designation, the CVA, which we both have. Um, and you can look at any valuation as a calculation of value or a conclusion of value. And so maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of background of what are the key differences in those two ways of doing evaluation. Sure. Well, under the NACBA standards, uh, we'll just we'll preface it with that. There are two different ways to estimate value or to provide an estimate of value. One is evaluation, and the other type is a calculation. The primary difference 
between a valuation and a calculation is that in a valuation, you're looking at all three approaches, the asset, income, and market approach, and you're literally performing all the procedures, uh, additional procedures. But with a calculation, you're performing usually specific procedures agreed upon by, between you and the client, and it's limited. It's, it's usually significantly less procedures and sometimes maybe even one approach <laughs> as opposed to the three approaches uh, in evaluation. And so it's restricted professional judgment is probably the best way to put it. But, you know, in a litigation setting is where it really, really takes off because in a litigation setting, most of the time a valuation is going to be nine, nine times out of ten. If you can do a full valuation, you need to do it. <laughs> you have to have a reason to, to do the lower form of uh, calculation. Generally speaking, you're not going to get very many opportunities to do that with the exception of some sort of limitation of time, data, or financial resources that causes you to have to perform a calculation as opposed to a full-blown valuation. Well, and I think that, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, I want to just do this cheaper, right? Or I don't, I don't need everything. I don't need a full blown. Can you just run some numbers? Can you like back of the envelope, all of those things that we've heard a hundred different times, but is the calculation of value really much cheaper, first of all, or second of all, is there really just certain reasons that you would use a calculation versus a conclusion? Well, to answer your first question, generally it can be cheaper, but it's normally not that much cheaper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and depending on complications, it can be every bit as expensive as a valuation. It just depends. I've seen calculations get blown out of proportion. But when you're talking about the instances where a calculation is even plausible, let's just start off with that. Uh, generally in the litigation setting, a calculation is only plausible if you have to do it, in my opinion, and, and I say that because if you are in a adversarial litigation setting where you have another opposing expert on the other side of you who can perform a valuation or calculation or what have you, and that estimate of value is going to be compared to whatever you put out. If you put out a calculation and the opposing expert puts out a valuation, you may have just accidentally put your client in a weaker position. It's not always the case, but generally speaking, if you have a self-imposed scope limitation embedded in your calculation and the other expert doesn't, a lot of times judges are going to put more weight towards the opposing expert's valuation. So generally speaking, the only times I would say that you could even think about a calculation is if you have a limitation that's uncontrollable, like the data or the financial resources or time. And those are very, you know, those are kind of touch and go things. You know, if you're talking about data, that's something that we've, we've seen with the pandemic. We've seen a whole lot of limitations of the limitation of the reliability, or the access to the data. Sometimes the data doesn't even exist. <laughs> I've had mm -hmm. cases that, you know, I had a case uh, probably about three or four years ago where a guy was in prison for like nine years. And the wife, after he got out of prison, they were still married and the wife wanted a divorce. 
and she was making an argument for dissipation of the marital estate because basically the business that he had operated had been running fraudulently and basically made money off of bribery and things like that. And so I had to go back and try to determine what, if any, value was dissipated in his particular instance because the wife was making a dissipation of the marital estate argument, basically saying that had he not done these fraudulent things, um, the marital estate would be worth more. But in order to do that, I had to go back and take a look at, a, at performing a valuation or an estimate of value that dated back 10 years. And sometimes when you're going back that long and you'll have the same situation if you have like gifting of stock or other situations where you're looking at the separate property appreciation or things like that, when you have to do multiple valuations or like a before and after valuation, sometimes you're not going to have the data. Sometimes you'd have to like rebuild a balance sheet in order to even look at an, uh, an asset approach, for example. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll have a client that just has nothing but Schedule C's. And in that particular case that I did with the guy that got out of prison, I had to back out all of the fraudulent, illegal, felonious income. <laughs> and it ended up showing that like basically I couldn't do an asset approach because I'd have to rebuild the balance sheet. Couldn't really do a market approach because there's not really a bunch of market multiples for felonious businesses out there. <laughs> and so I basically was stuck with doing like periodic um, income approaches. And that was basically a calculation. And I, I, before I did it, I talked to my attorney or my client. They talked to their client. We talked to the court. We talked to the opposing expert who ended up not even doing any sort of valuation or calculation. They basically just went with my number. And so I made it a multilateral decision as opposed to a unilateral decision. I didn't just do it by myself. I didn't take it upon myself just to put it out there. I made sure all the parties were in agreement that, hey, we don't have very any other things that we can do. And generally that would be the type of situation where a calculation may be okay when you don't have any other choice. But if you do it out of preference, <laughs> that's a whole nother thing. A lot of times what, before I wrote the pink elephant in the courtroom article or even this unimpeachable treatise article, I, I know you, you see it too. You would see people that perform calculations in a litigation setting in a disingenuous way. <laughs> we can pretend like that doesn't happen, but it does. So a lot of times what you'll see is people that decide to perform a calculation in a litigation setting in order to control the inputs and better control the outputs or the estimate of value that is most financially advantageous to whoever retains them. And that's absolutely just not appropriate, just completely. There's nothing unimpeachably neutral about doing that whatsoever. And the problem was we weren't really giving anybody any guidance as to when we could or should or shouldn't do a calculation in a litigation setting. It's always just been you can't do it on one side, and then the other side's like, yeah, you can do it, but we're not going to really tell you when you can do it. <laughs> right. I, I've always thought that that was inappropriate. So in addition to the articles that I've written, the NACBA Standards Board's put out some phenomenal, I have to give a shout out to the entire NACBA Standards Board who put out some phenomenal Q&As, or I'll call them interpretations, is what I like to call them. Uh, sounds better. <laughs> but... uh Ralph Carter, Josh Horn, Nick Mears, and the whole team, they just did a fantastic job of putting the final touches on the standard interpretations, which get into the very subject of when a calculation 
is or may not be appropriate in a litigation setting in among, uh, among other topics. And especially during the pandemic, I thought it was very timely. <laughs> right. Well, because I think that what people don't may not understand is that a calculation is going to have a caveat to it. And it's going to say, if I've done everything, that it would be a conclusion or the number could be different. Um, I've also seen calculations where you would work closer with the client or the advisors to determine the procedures that we would use um, or, you know, to limit it to one particular way of looking at it, an income approach or just a market approach. Um, and I think that when you go to testify in court, that you need to be able to defend your position. And so in some respect, it's like if you feel comfortable doing something, anything, you need to figure out how to defend it and then defend it with additional third party. But that kind of brings us back to, you know, the whole theory of, of what you wrote is how does the unimpeachable integrity and objectivity play into the business valuation, whether you do a calculation, whether you do a conclusion, and then in that litigation setting, like how does that look to you? Well, the whole, I'll say it like this, the, the whole reason why valuation generally is given more weight than a calculation is because you, you objectively looked at it, you've looked at all three approaches, you've you know, basically made an, the, the objective inference where you basically eliminated the other one or two approaches and you've selected an approach and a method or technique that best uh, determines the estimate of value. You come to a conclusion. In a calculation, you don't necessarily look at all of the other uh, approaches. You may just look like you said, you may just look at one. And when it comes down to objectivity, especially in the courtroom, I mean, you're, you have to be unbiased, you have to be unimpeachably neutral, you have to have integrity. And I mean, if you want to do it from a mathematical standpoint, you, your testimony has to be helpful and more likely than not, which means 51%. <laughs> and if you only do one approach and you don't even consider the other two, that's one third. Right. <laughs> and I think that if you run on be unbiased, I mean, the whole definition, like the definition of bias is if you don't give consideration to some other alternative, uh, either conclusion or outcome or value or something like that. And you don't even give a reason as to why that, you know, possible alternative is not the right alternative or not the right approach to value. And it's very important because, you know, when it comes to testifying in court, you work for the court. You don't work necessarily. I mean, you, you can get hired by one side or the other. You can get hired by, you can be appointed as a neutral expert. Sometimes there's two experts and you can get appointed as a third expert if the judge doesn't believe either one of them or doesn't know who to believe. Um, but no matter who hires you, whether it's one party, both parties, the judge or nobody, you have to be neutral, you have to have integrity, you have to have objectivity. And I think that that's sort of at the heart of, you know, why generally speaking, evaluation is going to be your best uh, form of report in a litigation setting. You can, like you said, you can do a calculation in a litigation setting, but you got to be very careful. I mean, literally, it's, it's very hard to defend a self-imposed supplementation that the other expert didn't have 
-hmm. and you just either either a client imposed scope limitation that, that your client wants you to basically limit yourself to, or you're limiting yourself. And I think you got to be very, very careful. Now, there's instances, especially with COVID-19, where it is most certainly at least an option to do a calculation, especially if all parties can agree to it and the court's made aware of it. Um, and I say that because I've seen, at least in West Virginia, West Virginia is where I do at least half of my cases is where I live. Poor state and nation. Literally, West Virginia and Mississippi go tit for tat each and every year. They go back and forth, 49.50 for the poorest state. The average median, median income is like $35,000 a year. And there's a lot of self-employed individuals who have very small businesses, but they still get divorced. And just because their business only makes $500,000 in revenue or a million, you know, when they get divorced, they may still have to value that business, at least in West Virginia. And so, you know, because the economy is almost even before COVID, West Virginia had a bad economy. But even even still yet, whenever you have, you know, uh, children involved and maybe you should, you know, the lawyers need to focus their efforts more on the child support, or the custody and all that stuff. Sometimes in the big scheme of things, the value estimate of a self-employed, very small business, it may not need or require that much um, work. The judge may see that. The judge, you know, courts are generally always trying to be um, judicially effective or cost effective. And so anything that you can kind of get everybody to stipulate to, generally courts like that. Any, and especially, you know, divorce is a very costly thing. So anytime somebody gets divorced, you have to basically come to the conclusion that it's going to cost more for us to be divorced and separate and operating as two different households. And, you know, I try to be conscious of that. I mean, I have kids myself. I have stepkids. I live the blended family thing every day of my life. And so I'm very, I try to be very conscious of, you know, all of those decisions that have to be made during the divorce hearing or final hearing or that whole process. And sometimes the business valuation is not the biggest deal that you need to deal with. Sometimes, you know, uh, there's other issues, personal issues. Sometimes you have other issues, especially in West Virginia. You may have substance abuse issues. You may have custodial issues. Those end up taking precedence. So in cases like that, especially when it's going to cost the marital estate maybe more money than it really should, I mean, I first and foremost usually suggest the joint retention of just one expert as opposed to two dueling experts. Um, and I usually do that even when one side approaches me. I'll usually say, hey, before you even you know, give me all the details, why don't you go to the other side and see if they would be interested in a, a joint expert or a, a neutral expert sort of position. And those sort of opportunities can sometimes facilitate uh, a calculation as being a better you know, alternative, at least that's in my experience. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that one thing that we kind of glossed over, and I just want to reiterate a little bit, you did mention it, but I think people don't understand because they get in these situations of litigation, either partner disputes or divorce, and they get these two experts, right? And attorneys see it way more, but they get an expert that looks at the same information and one says it's worth 5 million and one says it's worth 500,000, right? Mm 
maybe it's not that big. I'm being, ex I'm exaggerating, but you have a huge discrepancy. And so then they're like, wait, how, how is it possible that these two people have completely different uh, valuations? Well, you mentioned it, but what is the true responsibility of a valuation expert in a litigation setting? Like, why are we really there? Because I think sometimes we forget. Yeah, we're really there to assist the court in understanding the facts and the evidence. You have to be helpful to the court. If you're not helpful, the court will just ignore whatever you have to say. But you're there for the court, generally. I mean, that's that's the user, the decision maker, uh, the person who's going to take whatever your opinion or your expert you know, testimony says, you know, take that and have to make another decision, usually answering a, a you know, some sort of statutory requirement. They, they may have to look at two experts that both have, you know, competing valuations and they have to determine which one has more weight or, you know, if they have to adjust, you know, a lot of times you see them, you know, I don't know how else to say it, but split the baby, you know, they're, they're going to be using your testimony. And a lot of times you're right. Experts get sidetracked and they start to become more advocate oriented. And that's, that's the lawyer's job. I mean, mm -hmm. Lawyers are, those are the, they have an ethical duty to advocate for their client. That's not the expert's role. The expert, whether they're hired by one side or both sides or, you know, appointed, they are there to assist the court, period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and the more we, you know, you see it, it's, it's not easy to not be advocate oriented because you know you have this sort of financial relationship with somebody who's paying you a retainer, paying you your hourly rate maybe, and just I think the adversarial sort of nature of litigation in and of itself can sometimes even facilitate the advocacy that you see sometimes, but that's not what an expert is supposed to do. An expert is supposed to be unimpeachably neutral, unbiased, no matter who's paying them or you know, who hired them, or if nobody's hired them, you have to be unimpeachably neutral in both actuality and in appearance. I've seen people that they appear to be unimpeachably neutral, but they're really not, and they're not convinced. And I've seen people that are trying to be and, and really are unimpeachably neutral, but they don't convince the court or, you know, whoever matters that they are. And so yeah. it's, it's a sort of double-edged sword. You have to be unimpeachably neutral to assist the court and you also got to convince the court that you're being that way sometimes it doesn't come across clearly well and i think that you know it it gets to be confusing because you do you know everybody gets emotional we're in an emotional situation if you're going to court for any capacity there's emotions involved um, and everybody wants to treat it like a negotiation, right? Well, if you come in and you work for me, so if you come in high and they come in low and we come in the middle, that's probably where we want to be when in the reality is that, you know, and you talked about being a joint expert, right? So a lot of times when we're joint experts, they're like, well, what happens if one party doesn't like it or not? And I say, we're still going to go to court we're still going to take it to court because the value that we're providing, we believe in and we think it's justified. Um, and I think it does as an expert, you have to kind of step outside of all the emotions of the clients and the attorneys because they all do that, you know, again, they're weaving a story 
to tell to the court. And we're coming in and what I, you know, like to do, which is what you've, um, you know, talked about a little bit was that um, we're supposed to be neutral, you know, and, and why is it that we're supposed to be neutral? Well, as an expert, it is our responsibility to protect the neutrality. It is our responsibility to protect our reputation and our integrity. And the only way to do that is to do the job and to not allow the client or attorney to dictate how you're going to do it. Um, but do you think that people actually see us as neutral um, or because that's what we're supposed to be, but are we really considered neutral? Are we considered part of that team, that side? Oh, you're for the wife, you're for the husband, you're for the partner. You know, how do we continue to maintain that neutrality? Yeah, it's very hard to do at times, but I, I think that ultimately your client sees you for what you are. So if you're the type of expert that the client knows if they want a high number or they want a low number, or they just want a number that they want you to testify to, if you're the type of expert that basically is a hired gun and they can pay you to say whatever they want you to say, they're going to see you as that. I take pride in, you know, I'd like to think at least that my clients call me when they want to know not you know, what the high number or low number is, but rather what the right number is. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're that type of expert and you're neutral and no matter what, I mean, you, you want to be, you know, um, it, it's tricky because you're talking about people that are going to be either retaining you or not retaining you in the future. <laughs> so a lot of people take the easy route and just, you know, testify or, or say whatever the client wants them to say. And then, I'm assuming they, you know, believe that it's going to get them ongoing, you know, cases in the future. But in reality, if the lawyer sees that you're like that, they don't, they're not going to really respect you. And mm -hmm. <laughs> heaven forbid you actually end up on the other side of a case against that lawyer who knows that in, you know, a case two years ago, they basically paid you to say whatever they wanted you to say. And they're going to probably assume you're doing the same thing in, you know, the new case. Mm -hmm. So you got to be really careful. And I think the judges see it too. And I think it's important that people stay mindful of that because, you know, anytime you're an expert in court, you got multiple parties that are, you know, your, your, your witnesses, they're, they're watching you. And so you have you know, your client opposing counsel, you have a judge and sometimes a jury, the judges, can oftentimes be a very good source of recommendations. Those are the ones that are going to be like appointing you as a joint expert or even allowing you, you know, if it's suggested to be a joint expert, they're the ones that are either going to say yay or nay or, you know, not even consider it. And so I think judges pay a lot. I mean, they have the hardest job in the courtroom. And I think that they take note of those experts that literally come up with the biggest bunch of crap. <laughs> in every case and have no integrity. They, uh, the, the judges notice that. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is hard and it's especially hard, you know, especially like during a pandemic because, you know, the pressure, financial pressures, you know, sometimes lawyers may take longer to pay, things like that. And in times like this, I think it's probably more likely that some people may, you know, succumb to unethical behavior, I would venture to say. 
Um, but it's even more important now to be not, you know, as ethical as you've always been, but even more so. Because I think that the stakes are higher, and I think everyone's paying attention. And, and you're right, it is a very, very difficult thing sometimes, because literally you're, sometimes what you have to say is not what your client wants to hear, but you you have to take that approach. You have to be unimpeachably neutral, because if you if you don't, Trust me, you'll be the first one that they throw under the bus when the case goes bad. Mm -hmm. Even if you testified exactly what they told you to say, whenever things go bad, you'll get thrown under the bus and you don't have any integrity. I mean, really, all they do is they pay us for our opinion and our integrity and the strength of our testimony. I mean, that's, that's all we got. That's what we're selling. Right. And I think that, you know, it's important to understand that a lot of times our clients, which seem to be the business owners or, um, you know, the parties, the the husband or the wife, um, or even in a partner dispute or other type of litigation, it could seem to be that that person, that that company. And the reality is a lot of times our consistent client is the attorneys and the judges. And, you know, so typically I will try to tell people, like, I understand that this is your, your first time or only time getting divorced. I totally understand. But you have to understand that the judges and the attorneys do this every day. And they're going to see through, you know, the story that you present if the financials don't, uh, aren't logic, you know, like, to me, I think judges always default on logic. Like, does it make sense? Could it be possible that the company is worth $1 million when they have $2 million of cash in the bank? Just in general, does it make sense that that would be true? And so a lot of times we're trying to take the financials and tell the story from the reality as opposed to what story we want them to believe. And I think that uh, most of the time I'm trying to tell people, I'm trying to create a value that if both of you took this to another person who understands valuations, if they took Melissa's report to Zach, right? Zach has to be able to say, hmm, seems reasonable. Yes, I would do things different. Or maybe it could have been higher or lower in this area, right? An assumption could be different. But for the most part, it's reasonable. And if if that can't happen, if somebody can't come in and look at your report and say it's reasonable based on theory, then you have to start to look at how are you contriving the numbers to get to where you need to be. And, you know, there's always assumptions that you can make. But if, you know, and I and I will tell the client, like, if, if I go on the stand and the judge is just like, that doesn't even make sense. I won't lose anything, right? You will you're going to lose this case. And this is the only time that you do this. Now, I'm going to protect my reputation by not doing that. But I don't think everybody always does that. Um, and so I think that that's where you have to be mindful that even as an expert, if you put yourself out too far and get burned, everybody is watching. And they're realizing that you were willing to do whatever it took because you were getting paid. And that, you know, is not um, typically they won't rehire those people. And just like you said, if I'm on the other side, they're like, oh, I know what she did and they'll come for you. Um, so I think you really do have to look 
at doing valuations in the best way. I don't think there's a right number, but I think there's a reasonable range and you need to try to be in it <laughs> or, else, or else we'll come along and kind of, you know, uh, not make it a very good situation. But if, as you're seeing in divorces and um, different types of litigation, um, how much weight do you think business valuations are carrying during times like this, during a pandemic? Um, you know, we've been talking a lot on this podcast about, I mean, what happens when you can't really figure out what's going to happen in the future, because none of us can, but you also have this really wonky history, right? So what do you, what are you seeing um, about business valuations in the pandemic? The type of situation where you're talking about fairly, maybe not significant dollars, but at least material to the marital estate dollars. And a business valuation, especially during a pandemic when you know, there's more uncertainty, more valuation uncertainty. Maybe your inputs are messed up. Um, there's volatility in the market. Sometimes your multiples are not even relevant. I think a full-blown valuation, if you can perform one, is so much more valuable now in, during a pandemic because oftentimes you're going to have to perform additional procedures. <laughs> so it gives even less of a reason generally to perform a calculation unless you have to. Now, absent the, the examples I gave earlier where you have limitations of time, data, or financial resources, if you can do a full-blown valuation, especially during a, a pandemic, when you know really your normal operating procedures that you would normally do for evaluation may not cut it, <laughs> you may have to do some additional stuff to, to really build up or verify to your own personal threshold, the reliability of the data that you're using and the output that you're getting, um, I think it's, it holds a lot more weight because the stakes are higher. And, and, I, and I would emphasize that the stakes are higher in a pandemic because, I mean, generally in a divorce, evaluation is an important thing, especially if it's a business within the marital estate. But right now, especially given the repercussions of, you know, overvaluing something or undervaluing something, I mean, it can have very, very bad, a very bad impact on, you know, an individual's life, livelihood, their business. I mean, you know, somebody gets hit with a, you know, a huge equitable distribution uh, payout or something like that that's unjustified. I mean, you're, you're talking about putting somebody out of business during a pandemic. So you got to be very careful. And there's just a whole lot of uncertainty out there that evaluation is going to capture better than the calculation. I mean, unless you just absolutely positively have to do the procedures that you're doing in the calculation and you can't do anything outside of those things, evaluation is going to be the, the best choice 99% of the time. I mean, it just is going to be, and I think it's really needed. The, the additional procedures, the additional assurance and reliability that you're going to get by doing a full-blown valuation, if you have everything that you'll need to do it, I mean, the first question I always ask in court is if they didn't do a full-blown valuation, but they could, why didn't they? Right. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, well, that in that position. And it's hard because we are, we, you know, by our designation, we're required to say that the value could be different. 
if we did everything that was necessary for a full valuation. And I think that, you know, that alone, I don't want to have to answer in court. And I also prefer to be more in control of my testimony, you know, where the, and, and I will only go as far as I am comfortable, but my comfort usually lies in third party data, you know, so it's not just my opinion, like, oh, I'm just going to come up with a number. It's like, oh, I've looked at these 18 different things and then my professional judgment and things like that. But we do have the capability of doing, um, reports or oral presentations, right? So we can present the report in person, online, verbally, or we can present a report. Um, Do you think it's important to make sure that these reports are written? Like when you go to litigation, and some states require reports to be written in certain types of litigation. Some states just have financial schedules and you testify to all of the language that would be in a report. Do you think it's important? Does it matter whether it's written or presented verbally? Well, first and foremost, you made a great point. Jurisdiction matters because that's the most important thing. The jurisdiction is always going to dictate, you know, the requirements, the form of the report, you know, whether or not, you know, a calculation is even something you need to even talk about. There's some jurisdictions you shouldn't even just joke about the idea. Uh, whether we talk about an oral report versus a written report, I know like out in California, the cases I've seen, it's like they are super comfortable doing oral reports. Literally, they do them all the time. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> I personally, full disclosure, I've never done one. And I would think the reason why is because I would feel like I would basically have to write the report to have my, my case file be sufficient enough for me to capture everything I would have to capture in an oral report. And in the instance that I was, heaven forbid, doing an oral report for a calculation, oh, <laughs> I mean, that's, 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 you know, that's, and I've had people do that to me. That's very tricky because, like, like you were saying earlier, one of the differences between a calculation and evaluation is that in a calculation, you have to be very clear to say, this is a calculation of value. It's not a conclusion of value. It's, less procedures than evaluation had i done all the procedures you know to to reach a conclusion it would have been it could be a materially different number you have to be very clear and concise about what you are presenting that this is a calculation it is not evaluation it is not a conclusion of value if you translate that into an oral report well then that gets even trickier (laughs) because if you do an oral valuation compared to an oral calculation, I've seen it firsthand. Those look very similar (laughs) to the untrained eye and even a judge that's got decades of experience doing divorce, you know, um, matrimonial disputes. They may not catch (laughs) the fact that, you know, and it's not really very concise in the standards either. It's kind of like, well, if you don't have a written report, you know, you, you, I mean, you have an obligation to write that you're doing a calculation, I guess, and that it's not evaluation. But I mean, I guess generally, I would assume you would then have to testify to that. But mm-hmm. depending on the skill of the expert and how good they are at, you know, massaging or finessing the court or, you know, you always see the, the Richard Gear looking expert, like the ones who are just super smooth and like they could literally testify to anything. 
sometimes they get away with murder. <laughs> and, you know, you got to be careful. So I personally wouldn't do, unless I absolutely had to or the situation or the jurisdiction allowed me to, I, I wouldn't be all that comfortable with doing an oral anything, like a calculation or evaluation. And in mm -hmm. West Virginia, you have to submit the reports way before the trial date or the final hearing date anyway. But even in the, the states where that's not necessarily the case, I would think that if you're going to go ahead and do all of the work anyways, unless you just really just want to wing it or didn't have time to write it, I would just go ahead and do a, <laughs> a written report. I mean, it's, it's going to be probably easier to present. And at the end of the day, documentation saves lives. So even if you do screw something up, you at least have documentation embedded in the report that says how you got from point A to point B to point C, and hopefully in your file as well. It all, you also have documentation that basically, you know, backs that up. And I think that, I don't know that I would do an oral report. I know a lot of people out in California, they love to do it. That's like the only way they do it. Yeah. Well, and there are a lot of states that you can just do the schedules, right? You can just do the financial calculations, but there's no written report to it. So I think you definitely need to um, gauge your client, the other, I mean, sometimes it comes down to the opposing attorney, you know, the attorney's relationships. Um, we have a lot of clients that will sometimes be like, well, let's see what Melissa's report says first, and then maybe we'll hire somebody. And that's a slippery slope too, you know, so there's some issues with that process. But I think you have to definitely be on the same page because that is additional costs that go into writing that report um, and protecting yourself during deposition so that you're prepared and things like that. So I think being upfront with those expenses. But I think that this has been very helpful um, you know, we've talked about some nuances of a calculation of value versus a conclusion of value, which again, I think is lost on the public a lot, but is a very important issue for valuation people and attorneys and clients to know kind of what they're getting into. It's not always in litigation, it's not always best to get the cheapest process or product. Um, and there's ways that we can be efficient that don't necessarily have to do with, you know, limiting the scope or the capabilities and the valuation. You know, I would, I would rather seek out somebody who is efficient in their process as opposed to creating efficiencies based on limiting, um, you know, their capabilities. But um, you've given us a tremendous amount of information about valuations and litigation, but maybe you can tell us more about you and your firm and kind of areas that you can help people if they're looking for those types of things. Sure. Well, thank you for having me today. Um, like we said earlier, my name is C. Zachary Myers, CPA, CVA. I am qualified as an expert in business valuation, forensic accounting, pension valuation, and taxation. I do about 50% plaintiff, 50% defendant work. I, I do nothing but litigation support. I love it. I'm not afraid to say it. If they ask me that in deposition or a trial, I take pride in the fact that I specialize in litigation or pre-litigation. I do a lot of damage reports, divorces, uh, pension valuations, lost profits, all the, all the complex stuff that makes my life exciting. Um, 
I always tell people, well, hopefully you won't have to call me because normally if you're calling me, it's because you're, something bad's happened, either fraud or divorce or damages. But generally, any any attorneys that want to give me a call, um, I know my website is up there. You guys can Google me. See Zachary Myers. You'll find tons of information about me, more than you even want to know. <laughs> I'm super transparent, and I, I live by that. Also write the unimpeachable neutrality series, and I highly suggest it. Obviously, that's a biased opinion. <laughs> I'm biased opinion you'll ever hear from me, but I think it's great. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we think it's great too. So uh, we'll we'll come up with more topics for you in the future, and we'll we'll have you back. But we appreciate you, Zach, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks.